Hey everyone, welcome back to The Jacobin Show. It's actually our last show of the year. Uh, I'm here with, of course, young Kale. Kale, what's going on? Not much. Good to be here. Good to be here for the last show. It's kind of strange. Not the last show of the year. We're, you'll see us again in the new year. Uh, yeah, we're, we're taking a little holiday break, but we'll yeah. definitely be back in the new year. Um, and I don't know. I, I feel like we have some good guests coming up. Uh, we maybe won't reveal them yet, uh, but stay tuned. Please tune in in the new year. We would love to see you. Yeah, expect the best and literally nothing less from us. Only the best guests in the year. Speaking of the best guests, uh, I'm super excited about today's guests. We actually have a surprise extra guest, Rene Rojas. That's right. You know him from Catalyst and Jacobin. Uh, He's on the editorial board of Catalyst and writes frequently for Jacobin. His last piece just over the weekend was on the Chilean presidential election. So that's obviously what we're going to be talking to him about uh, in just a few minutes. He's actually here with us. So we're going to bring him on to talk about what happened in Chile. Uh, And then who's our other guest, Kale? We're also joined by Catherine Liu, uh, friend of the show, and hopefully, I, I believe Audience it's a, a guest fave, honestly. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in every one of your minds, but to the extent that I do know, it's a fan favorite. And so Catherine's going to be telling us all about why the American left today is so screwy and why we really have to get our shit together. Uh, if that's not already obvious enough from you know our typical rapport on, on the Jacobin show, but... I figured it would be the right way to end 2021 uh, after a year of, you know, post-Trump Biden administration and post-Bernie, post-Bernie. I mean, really, it's that's kind of the big thing. It's post-Bernie. How does the left actually, you know, get its shit together uh, so that we actually win? Um, so I think Catherine will I hopefully give us like a nice uh, floor to stand on and starting to figure out those questions in the new year. So and at the very no least, doubt that she you will, will have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to quickly say before we get to Renee, um, I saw just a quick question in the chat uh, right when I logged on about like, what is the Brahmin left? Um, so I just want to quickly like give a super, super quick gloss and we'll get into it later with Catherine. But the Brahmin left is a term that Thomas Piketty, the economist coined, and it basically refers to the segment of the electorate that is extremely highly educated, um, holds cosmopolitan values, uh, probably lives, you know, uh, in a large democratic city on the coasts, and most importantly, uh, votes liberally or votes for Democrats in the US. Um, so, you know, your, your classic MSNBC liberal, I, I think you might say, um, but, but also I think the term applies to um, lots of people on the actual left as well. Um, and I want to point out that Thomas Piketty did not mean it as a pejorative, um, but, but we'll get into all of that later. Yeah. Uh, that being said, uh, we should move on to our first interview. Let's do it. Uh, so we are now joined by Renee Rojas. Uh, as I mentioned, he is on the editorial board over at Catalyst and um, is a contributor to Jacobin. He just had an article in Jacobin, like I said, about the Chilean election. He's also a professor at Binghamton. And uh, he uh, is, we're just really happy to have him. Uh, he's been on the weekend show before, again, to talk about Chile. Uh, Renee, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. 
So, um, of course, yesterday we all heard the news. Uh, Chile has elected a new president. Um, I especially liked the Associated Press's headline. Uh, they wrote, leftist millennial wins election. <laughs> so, Renee, who is this leftist millennial and what were the stakes in this election? Yeah, um, Gabriel Boric actually emerged in the political scene about 10 years ago during the mass student mobilizations that um, surged again, 2011, 2012. Um, and these protests, these, the cycle of protests really changed politics in, in Chile um, under, in the neoliberal, during the neoliberal era. It had a transformative effect on the whole political scene. And one of the things that the student movement did was initiate right the emergence of what can be called a new radical left in Chile. And Boric, Gabriel Boric, who's you know, 35-year-old president-elect, really was at the head of this emergence. And he has been shaping it and helping to guide it um, ever since. So that's kind of who Boric is, Boric is and what he represents. What was at stake? To answer your second question very quickly, and then we can get into the details uh, if time permits. But what was at stake, in, in my opinion, was uh, really the question was whether or not Chile's political revolution that really exploded in with the rebellion of 2019 and has since been driving an effort to refound um, the, the Chilean political system and part of, you know, the social arrangements as well. But what was at stake was whether or not the political revolution would continue or whether or not um, it would end um, if the other, his rival, Jose Antonio Gast, a far hard right-wing candidate, won the elections. And Boric won resoundingly. Um, so for now, it tells me that the political revolution is still alive. It's ongoing. There's a lot of excitement in Chile. You could see it. It was, you know, I was, I was on the phone with my cousins all night. They were sending me videos. You, it was really palpable on the street. There was a sense that um, the movement to move Chile away from a neoliberal growth model, you know, with the just grotesque levels of inequality and exclusion has characterized Chilean society over the last 30 years. There's a sense that we can keep this movement going. And, um, you know, there's still work to be done to dismantle neoliberalism in Chile, but it can happen. Right. Well, so speaking of the, the political revolution in Chile, one of the big you know, pieces of context for this election is the Constitutional Convention uh, and the election of a fairly left uh, set of delegates to the convention. Could you maybe just um, refresh everyone's memory about what the what the convention is, who who's a part of it and yeah. uh what it looks like the outcome will be. Yeah, it really is up in the air, but just to, to go back in, in time a bit, the the Constituent Assembly, which is now, you know, um, in session and rewriting uh, Chile's constitution, which, um, the, you know, is currently the constitution that was imposed after the transition from the dictatorship, from Pinochet's dictatorship. Um, but how did we get here? It was really the result of the 2019, October 2019, what, what's called in Chile, el estallido social, or the, the big social kind of rebellion or explosion, um, which, you know, was characterized by just endless protests, very disruptive on the streets, in neighborhoods, in certain work sites, but mostly on the streets in the, in the um, 
major cities throughout the country. That was happening at the end of uh, second half of October. By middle of November, considering that you know the protests would just not um, subside, there was an agreement reached, and Boric, Gabriel Boric, president-elect, was actually an ins- an instrumental figure in in, in um, reaching this settlement. So there was an agreement with the government um, that the way out of this crisis was um, to hold a referendum, ask Chileans through a plebiscite whether they wanted. Um, to rewrite the constitution. And a year later, there was a, uh, you know, this plebiscite was held and Chileans overwhelmingly voted to ditch the old constitution and write the new one through uh, via a constituent assembly. Um, So in, I believe, March of this year, there were elections, um, constituent elections, um, which had very promising results. The two dominant coalitions, the center-left and center-right coalitions that have governed Chile ever since the transition to democracy in 1990, were severely weakened, terminally so in my opinion. And um, what you saw instead was the rise of um, this new left in two forms, I would say, in two guises. Um, The new partisan left, which is centered around Gabriel Boric's alliance called the Frente Amplio in coalition with the old Communist Party. But there was also a new radical autonomist left um, that did pretty well and had a significant presence. It has since imploded this autonomous radical left um, in ways that I, I think were damaging to the overall left and to the project, right, the, this kind of refoundational transformative project right now. Um, but at the very least, you know, that strand of radical left politics has been weakened. Um, and with this election result, I think um, one of the things we hope to see is that the the radical new left in its partisan form and its coalition, you know, Frente Amplio with the communists can retake the initiative, pick up the work that had stalled in the assembly um, and and move forward from there. I think that's one of the major takeaways of last night's elections. You know, this resounding win, Boric won by over, with over a million vote, um, hmm. uh, um, over cast. And considering how close the, the first round elections were, right, I don't think anyone expected Boric to do that well. That will allow the new left, this you know, in its partisan form, um, this coalition, again, of the Frente Amplio and the communists to retake the political initiative, which it had lost um, ever since the, the assembly had been inaugurated. Um, but I think we should be careful. It's only a partial recovery of this new left. While Boric has, you know, his, his, his victory has given um, Chile's uh, reformers, radical reformers, new life, and has allowed it to take uh, has allowed them to take the initiative. We have to keep in mind that he, as well as he did, he won with four, I think, over four and a half million votes, four point six million votes. And in October of 2020, in the constituent, I'm sorry, in the in the plebiscite um, for you know, at, in which Chileans Chileans were asked if they wanted a new constitution, um, almost six million voted in favor. Um, So it's not a full recovery of this new left. And the other thing that I think is an important takeaway, and I know I'm I'm moving away from your question, which was really about the assembly, 
but I think we should get it out of the way right now. Another uh, really important thing that was established last night is the consolidation of this new right in Chile. Mm-hmm. Although Jose Antonio Cast, you know, who represents this really harsh, anti-solidaristic, it's not, it's not economic populism that we've seen in other parts of the world. It's this harsh, authoritarian, illiberal um, uh, reactionary right, right? Um, this strand of right-wing politics, I think, really consolidated itself. Again, he lost by a million votes, but he got more votes than the right wing, the, the center right coalition ever received um, in any of the elections under the democratic period since 1990. Um, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot to celebrate, but as at the same time, you know, there is this worrisome development, and that's the consolidation of, of Gas's strand of or current of um, you know, authoritarian right wing politics. I want to pick up on um, what you're saying about this kind of uh, sort of tentative or, you know, uh, temporary left coalition. And I want to ask you about the class composition of that coalition, because you've written in the past about how the Chilean left, um, you know, much like the left in many other parts of the world, including, of course, the U.S., has been sort of losing working class support over the last decades. Did uh, the Boric campaign manage to reverse that trend in any way? Or um, what what did that coalition look like? Yeah, you know, this, this these elections, these campaigns, it's almost like a basketball game. It's, you know, they say <laughs> basketball is a game of spurts. And there were all these reversals and turnarounds that happened pretty abruptly. Um, and I think between the first round and, you know, last night, the results of the, the runoffs, I think Boric did manage to um, restore some of the backing, right, from more uh, traditional working class voters. But the, the Frente Amplio in particular, right, as because it emerged out of the student movement, um, had most of its backing, I would say enjoyed most of its backing came came from highly educated um, uh, middle layers, but you know uh, who have been struggling um, over the last couple of, of decades. But they don't have strong um, ties, right, to the organized working class in labor in industry. Um, they parts of, 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 of this new left tend to champion um, identitarian issues, other kind of typical social justice type concerns that you see among the, the radical left in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what I thought was promising about the new leftist coalition between the Frente Amplio and the Communist Party was that it, it portended the possibility of bringing together right this new vibrant left that is a lot younger that is very urban but with the old working class left or what's what's left of it in organized form that had closer ties to to the communist party over the course of the first um round campaigning i think boric's campaign tended to lose sight of and stray away from those you know broader class-wide material um, issues um, that could have, I think, helped bring this these two sides of the new left closer together. 
And while he was able to, to motivate and inspire, you know, this, this new young generation of social justice kind of radicals in, in Chile, his campaign tended to turn off, right, vast swaths of um, working Chileans who've really, really been struggling, not only under, you know, decades of neoliberalism in Chile, but especially in an intensified form since the pandemic hit um, Chile very hard uh, over a year ago, as we know. Um, so I think that accounts for his loss in the first round to Gast. It's not that Gast actually made significant inroads into the working class because they were so turned off by this new left that emphasizes cultural and identitarian social justice issues. It's not, it's not that. But he was able to peel away pivotal segments of working class votes, which gave him the edge in the first round. Uh, I think Boric and his, his team responded pretty well to this. Um, and beginning in the second round, a couple of things happened as he started to campaign for the, for the runoffs. One, yes, there was a moderation move to the the, the center that in Chile, that means the, the, what remains of the old center left. But at the same time, he began emphasizing some basic, broad, class-wide material um, grievances and, and reforms that, that um, his government will, will push in ways that he didn't in the first round. And so you look at the results, right? I'm still looking at all the numbers. One of the things that's most promising from la the you know the figures from last night, are that um, people really came out in ways they hadn't in the first round um, in the poor urban centers throughout the country, mainly in the in the in the capital region in the metropolitan region around Santiago, um, but in urban centers where Chile's working class is concentrated, and what you saw in some of the the poorest districts are numbers that don't quite match up um, to the, um, the divide in the uh, plebiscite of October of 2020 of last year, right? But it's, they, they looked a lot more like um, the, those numbers than, than the first round. So you, you see, for instance, in you know, the most populous townships in Santiago, Boric gets some, you know, in some places 70, 75 percent with, I should say, increased turnout. Mm -hmm. um, so that to me tells me that um, there he did manage to connect with broad layers of the working class beyond just, you know, the kind of radical activists that emerged with the student movement and other movements that have risen since. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe just actually one more question. Uh, and it's a little bit of a big question. So uh, <laughs> it'll be a big note to go out on. But as you very well know, obviously, I mean, the just having uh, a left or a socialist candidate obtain office is, you know, insufficient for radically transforming society to the benefit of working people. It's probably necessary, but it's insufficient to, you know, and that's where I think, you know, uh, the the movements on the street, the the protests uh, have been uh, pretty significant, I think, especially within Latin America as a whole, of, of what it portends for maybe the left in power actually being able to wield power and um, change society and not get like hamstrung uh, by the interests of capital in the way that, uh, you know, many other left governments have, have faced similar fates. But 
Um, I am curious, you know, given what the class composition is, both of the support for Boric, but also just for, uh, you know, the left broadly of like who the actual working class is uh, in Chile, uh, what what kind of model can the the incoming government actually implement to to transform society and and by what means? Um, obviously, previous, uh, you know, developed models are you know no longer viable um, as far as, you know, how, you know, Chile developed previously and you know, over the last like century or so. Um, and this is going to have to be in order to have like some kind of social democratic Chile, it's going to have to be something of a, of a relationship, a partnership between, you know, Boric and, and working class movements and organized labor. Um, and so I guess the question is really, it's both, you know, how's it looking? <laughs> is it, are, you know, is, are the conditions ripe for, uh, for Boric? And, uh, and then what actually is, does it seem like Boric is going to be pursuing in office? Oh, I mean, that's a, a huge question. And it is the central question at the moment. Um, I, I should start by saying something I, I, that hasn't come up yet. I've neglected to mention that, you know, I, I, well, I did mention that, that with this, uh, with these results, this new hard right has consolidated itself in Chile. And one of the um, ways that's reflected Right, institutionally, is that uh, the right has a pretty almost a majority, right, in the Senate, so it can block any of Boric's initiatives, right, and it will do so. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. So, Boric is going to have to find other sources of power, other sources of um, capacity to push through any reform agenda, even a fairly watered down one, you know, the fairly watered down one that he campaigned on in the, in the second round for the runoffs. And that includes, however, significant reforms moving away from the neoliberal growth strategy or growth model, um, decommodification of, of basic um, social provision, such as healthcare, pensions for retirees, education, et cetera. You know, as most folks know, what uh, really sets Chile apart from most of the world is just how um, liberalized its economy became and just how commodified all of these social goods um, have been over the last 50 years. And so even pushing through those reforms, right, which is a mild form of social democracy, if you will, is going to require, right, um, other sources of power right now. In, in Chile. And half of that, well, half of that, a big chunk of that, right, will rely on once again remobilizing the sectors that came out in the rebellion in 2019. Um, youth, you know, sectors with high unemployment rates, the informal sector who came out, you know, in force back then, um, who are very disruptive, can be re- very disruptive. Um, young women's collectives, neighborhood associations, etc. Um, but I don't think that will be enough. You know, those types of mobilization can be disruptive, right? But they lack a kind of power that, I, you know, those of you who have read my work know that, that I pay a lot of attention to. 
Which Most is, of the audience has read your work, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, they better have. If they haven't, they've been lying. And so. <laughs> well, of course, it's nothing that I've come up with, but it's something that I think all, all socialists um, should be aware of and know about. Is, and I'm talking about, you know, structural power, leverage mm-hmm. that working people come from their position um, in the economy and at work and production. Um, that kind of leverage will be absolutely vital uh, for Boric to push through. Again, even this fairly watered down program that he will fight for um, as president. And when about 40% of the population is working in the informal sector, barely scraping by, right? Um, That makes it tough to organize workers in formal industry, and particularly in the industries, right, where they can exert this kind of leverage, where they can flex their muscle and bring disruption and impose cost onto elites and society in general, right? But that is what it's going to take. And it's not altogether um, an impossible scenario. And this, you know, goes back to, to one of Jen's questions, right? Um, about about the composition of the new left and how you know what what the connections are between this new partisan left and and organized working class leading up to the rebellion October 2019 Chile had experienced the cycle of mobilizations cycle of protests which did include a lot of uh, you know you might call industrial actions strike activity workers um, organizing and stopping, and going on strike, right, in in strategic sectors of the economy. And in Chile, that mostly means, because it's, you know, an economy that still depends on copper exports, that mostly means mining, miners, and, of course, the people who move mineral from the deposits, from the mines to ports, and from there ship them to, you know, international markets. And we're talking about, you know, um, transportation workers and dock workers. Mm-hmm. And those two sectors in particular had seen an upsurge in organizing, in strike activity um, over, during the teens and leading up to the rebellion. Now, um, that type of organizing and that type of um, wielding of structural capacity, if you will, has been waning, um, but the, the bases are there. And so it'll be, it's going to be absolutely critical. I'm sorry about this. Um, for Boric. Is that Boric? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's disagreeing with everything I have to say. <laughs> Correct. Um, record on live. <laughs> you know, I get so mad at my students when this, this happens. So I hope they're not watching. Um, <laughs> but it's going to be absolutely critical for, for Boric to bring that alliance back together and lead, you know, lead in a way that actually makes that happen. Right. And the communist party that has more roots and has an organizing presence in some of these sectors is going to be instrumental in pulling this off. In my view, however, it's the only chance that body has, as you said, Kale, right. they're not, there aren't any other sources of, of kind of social power that he can rely on. There are no segments of the elite that he can ally with, right, to push toward a post-neoliberal development strategy. So he's going to depend, again, exclusively on the, the mobilization of poor and working people 
And within that, right, he's really going to need the structural muscle, uh, the leverage of workers in strategic industries and strategic sectors. But, you know, there is hope there. There, There's there's promise and it needs to be revived. All right. Well, Renee, thank you so much for uh, your latest update on really the state of Chilean neoliberalism. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point in the future to continue the conversation. Um, And everybody watching is, of course, already familiar with everything you've written for Catalyst and Jacobin. But just a reminder to go back and uh, reread all of Renee's articles. Especially this one, uh, which just came out over the weekend. Tomorrow, the Chilean left has to do more than stop the far right. It came up before the election, but it speaks to a great deal of, uh, you know, the actual everything we've been talking about now of like. Yeah. Yeah. We well, that article should have come out two weeks prior. Yeah. Um, that means that anything I write about, these results will come out about two months from now. But hopefully this will, <laughs> so stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's really nice chatting with you. Thanks for now. Thanks we'll for now. See you soon. Bye. 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 <laughs> Any last thoughts on Chile? Uh, no, but it's like, it truly is exciting. Um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. It is like, as far as, you know, the global left goes, uh, you know, there's been a lot of activity in Latin America in the last few years um, and a lot to be optimistic about. Uh, but I really do think Chile, maybe for the reasons that Renee was just mentioning, probably has some of the most promise um, because, it, you know, it's part of it is just that it doesn't have to deal with some of the the worst aspects of um, informality that so much mm-hmm. of the global South has to deal with where mm-hmm. like the working class, uh, you know, don't have typical, uh, you know, work conditions and, uh, and work. Um, they don't have contracts in the, in the same way that yeah. um, a lot of other workers have. And so, um, and you just have this massive pool of, of poor people that uh, employers swap in and out of jobs. And so um, it's made, you know, having some kind of worker power in society to like combat the power of business really difficult. And um, it seems like Chile for the reasons, again, that Renee was just talking about maybe has, um, you know, it might end up going a different direction Uh, and, you know, fingers crossed that they and many other uh, left groups and and parties, uh, you know, navigate these very strange and uh, rocky waters right now. Um, I think the margin by which Boris won is also pretty incredible. I mean, can we go ahead and call it a landslide? Like a million votes is yeah. nothing to sneeze at, right? Uh, especially when thinking about, you know, here in the U.S., like how narrowly Biden squeaked by, um, especially like right in the days after the election. Um, I would never want to relive that like nail biting like couple of weeks or however long it took to fully uh, decide what had happened. Um, but yeah. Congrats, Chile. Yeah. And I guess last thought on this is just um, given, you know, what the, you know, the um, uh, cast right is like in mm. Chile, but also just kind of like the authoritarian right across the world. Um, and, you know, this, it seems like there's a greater challenge to just democratic procedure and process. Yeah. Um, the fact that uh, as far as, you know, as of this recording, seems like um, cast is fully conceded and uh and Boric is going to you know become the next president but right um and i would imagine yeah, so that, far so good yeah the vote margin probably has something to do with that but um you know that's that i think remains kind of you know the open question for for the left globally mm-hmm. of um you know not just you know worker power in order to advance working class 
political projects, but also just to like maintain um, any kind of democratic procedure or process. Uh, so yeah, stakes are stakes are fairly high. Yeah. You know, as it goes. Yeah. Um, well, should we, should we turn back to the U S good old yeah, U S you know, uh, that's you guys got enough of the global South for today's <laughs> show. We'll, we'll come back to them in the new yeah, year. It's, it's strictly USA gold from here. That's right. Uh, but you actually have a really great segment that we should get to before we get to our interview with Catherine. And I think it'll probably transition quite nicely. This will be a nice little uh, hors d'oeuvre to whatever the heck is about to come. <laughs> so, um, obviously, whatever Catherine says is going to be uh, amazing. I'm very excited to talk to her. Uh, but yes, as you said, I, I think that this does relate in in large part to um, the professional managerial class, which, uh, of course, is her specialty. Um, and then related to that is, you know, the Brahmin left and this kind of professional middle class uh, left, uh, which we'll be talking about with her in a second. Yeah. So what I want to talk about is the word equity. So if you've recently spent time in nonprofits or in higher education administration, or listening to Democratic lawmakers, or hanging around certain progressive activists, you're probably aware that equality is out and equity is in. Over the past year, both liberal and conservative media outlets have covered this shift. For example, here's the New Republic, here's the Wall Street Journal, and here's Newsweek. So what exactly is equity, and why did our progressive thought leaders collectively seem to give equality the boot? Let's take a look at this explanation by none other than Kamala Harris from the 2020 campaign trail. So there's a big difference between equality and equity. Equality suggests, oh, everyone should get the same amount. The problem with that, not everybody's starting out from the same place. So if we're all getting the same amount, but you started out back there and I started out over here, we could get the same amount, but you're still going to be that far back behind me. It's about giving people the resources and the support they need so that everyone can be on equal footing and then compete on equal footing. Equitable treatment means we all end up at the same place. Now, this video, which we have to admit was a pretty bizarre kind of campaign video, naturally became a perfect opportunity for the right to grind their culture war acts. Tucker Carlson, for one, produced this bizarre rebuttal. What exactly is equity and how is it different from equality? Equality being the central principle this country was founded on. Well, the first thing to know about equality is that it's designed to challenge power. Equity, by contrast, is designed to protect power. Equity is what the British monarchy had. Equality is what the American colonists wanted. Equality is what allowed Andrew Jackson to rise from a childhood of bitter poverty in the Carolina woods, where he was born in 1867, and make it all the way to the White House. Andrew Jackson was tough, smart, and energetic. He lived a remarkable life, and America rewarded him for it. That's equality. People like that rising to the top. Equity is the opposite. Equity is what allowed Kamala Harris, the privileged child of two PhDs, to stay privileged. And in the end, to become one of the most powerful people on the planet, despite having achieved nothing impressive or worthwhile over the span of 56 years. So Andrew Jackson and Kamala Harris, both Democrats, one the child of equality, the other the child of equity. That's the difference in a nutshell. So to recap, 
Equality challenges power. Equity protects power. So Kamala Harris says that equity is simply getting everyone what they need, whereas Tucker Carlson says that equity is the British monarchy and not Andrew Jackson. Needless to say, both of these definitions of equity are pretty unsatisfying in their own ways, so let's dig a little deeper. Equity most frequently comes up these days in the context of addressing and ameliorating racial disparities. For example, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ibram X. Kendi writes, Here's an example of racial inequity. 71% of white families lived in owner-occupied homes in 2014, compared to 45% of Latinx families and 41% of Black families. Racial equity is when two or more racial groups are, are standing on relatively equal footing. An example of racial equity would be if there were relatively equitable percentages of all three racial groups living in owner-occupied homes in the 40s, 70s, or better, 90s. Let's also take a look at a standard-issue definition of equity that you might hear at a diversity training. As it happens, this one isn't totally unlike Kamala Harris's definition, but here's the slightly longer version. Equity can be defined as giving everyone what they need to be successful. In other words, it's not giving everyone the exact same thing. And here's where the difference between equity and equality really come in. Because it's important to remember that if we give everyone the exact same thing, expecting that we'll make people equal, it assumes that everyone started out in the same place. So here's an example. In this instance, we give everyone the exact same box, we treat them with equality, so that they can see over the fence. Well, that's great for the person on the left because they were already taller, but it's not so great for the person on the right who still can't see over the fence. From an equity perspective, we wouldn't want everyone to have the same size box because everyone isn't the same height to start out with. With an equity mindset, we would get everyone what they need to raise them up to the same level. Now, this whole analogy with a fence and having to stack up different boxes for different people so they can see over the fence is particularly interesting because we actually already have a policy term for this process. It's called means testing. And I'm far from the first person to say this, but if the whole, if the whole point with this thought exercise with the boxes and the fence and the people of different heights is to envision a fair society, then instead of wasting time figuring out exactly how many boxes each person needs so they can finally see over the fence, why not just remove the fence? The other problem with progressives trying to swap the word equality for equity is that the proponents of equity seem to offer only the most narrow and pitiful definition of equality, which, if you remember, they say means giving everyone the same thing. Now, of course, even the most cursory overview of American history shows that the concept of equality has been marshaled again and again by people fighting for enfranchisement, civil rights, and an end to slavery and exploitation, among other struggles. So given all of that, why the frantic pivot to equity? In October, the writer John Patrick Leary argued in The New Republic, the fact that so many institutions and politicians prefer equity is a warning sign that it is the more anodyne alternative to equality, one byproduct, perhaps, of conservatives' long campaign to transform political language to disavow universal social equality and celebrate individual opportunity. See, for other successful examples, the death tax or the free market. <laughs> 
So I can see his point here. Equity, of course, is also a financial term, so it makes sense that centrist politicians may have initially started using it to sound more palatable, particularly to business interests. But I would also argue that equity has become yet another word for members of the professional class to signal that they're at the vanguard of progressive thought and behavior. Much like saying the word BIPOC, which is a term that isn't used by the majority of people in the U.S., even the very people it's supposed to refer to, saying equity demonstrates that you got the memo that this, and not equality, is now the word that enlightened people use when they talk about racial or gender disparities. It's also why you hear equity frequently paired with diversity and inclusion, as in diversity, equity, and inclusion, as in the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry, which today is worth well over $8 billion. The trainers and consultants in this vast and growing industry obviously have a financial interest in constantly creating new vocabularies and codes of conduct when it comes to race relations, and then selling their services to train people in learning these new vocabularies. Now, aside from all of that, there's perhaps an even more fundamental reason why elites these days seem to love the concept of equity. The sociologist Dylan Riley wrote last year in the New Left Review that equity happens to be the defining logic of this particular era of capitalism. He writes, Multicultural neoliberalism offers a profoundly unequal but rigorously equitable form of capitalism. Social mobility might be low in such a society, but not for illegitimate reasons of race or gender. California offers a template for a capitalist society informed by this logic. This huge and immensely wealthy state has been run for decades by the liberal progressive wing of the Democratic Party. What has its record been? California has an inequality index higher than Mexico, the highest poverty rate in the country, an aging population, a housing market out of reach of most middle and working class people, fewer working class jobs, sorry, and poor public schools. It provides fewer and fewer working class jobs as its industrial structure becomes increasingly concentrated in the glitzy Bay Area Silicon Valley technology hub. This is roughly the model that multicultural neoliberalism offers the U.S. And just to drive his, his point home further, while the homeless population explodes in California, the cost of living continues to climb and economic inequality continues to spike unchecked, California's Democratic lawmakers have been working overtime to make sure the state's most elite institutions are diverse. I've talked about this in the past, but I think it's worth repeating. As you may have heard, the University of California recently decided to stop using SAT scores in admissions. The point of doing this was to help diversify its disproportionately Asian and white student body without running afoul of the California law that explicitly prohibits schools from considering applicants' race in admissions. Now, while diversifying the UC system may sound like an admirable goal, consider the fact that tuition at the University of California has risen significantly over the last several decades. As you can see from this graph, from the California budget and Policy Center, the average annual tuition at a UC school in 1980 was around $2,000 adjusted for inflation. In 2019, it was over $14,000. To make matters even worse, over the summer, the University of California Board of Regents announced that they had approved a tuition hike for the first time since 2017, set to begin next year. 
It's no secret that higher education is increasingly unaffordable for the majority of Americans, which means that the push to diversify universities in the face of steeply rising costs is really only a push to diversify a shrinking resource. This is the epitome of equity. Fortunately, there's an alternative to this desiccated, zero-sum form of politics. As Dylan Riley writes, the key planks of Bernie Sanders' platform in 2016 and 2020 included progressive taxation, public infrastructure spending, a national health insurance scheme, and expanded public services. He goes on to say, this is a more substantial project than equity as it seeks to address inequality itself. Strikingly, this too is a redistributive project. Sanders calls insistently for massive material redistribution funded by corporate profits. In other words, we can do so much better than equity. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And uh, it's it's so funny, the, the pushback that Sanders would get, for instance, when he would propose universal solutions to these problems, when he would say, you know, every single person deserves to have health care as a human right uh, through a Medicare for all single payer health care system. And people would push back and say, I mean, look, you know, sure, I agree. But a universal program, you know, it's that it's that very kind of like it's the Kamala Harris definition of uh, equality where if everyone gives a box to everybody. So, yeah, everyone's getting a little bit higher up. But then, like, you know, you're just preserving inequality. You're just, you know, making the floor a little higher. Um, And that's just not how universal programs work at all. (laughs) Like it's it's saying everyone gets the same. It's like everyone's dolled out a little bit of resource. Here's here's your little resource. Here's your little resource. Everyone gets a little healthcare resource, and uh, and you get just that little bit. And you know that's that's universal. But obviously, that's Mm -hmm. not what it means. It means that uh, everyone, because they are human beings, because they all have the same inherent value as a person. You and I are the same, have the same value as any other person in society. Uh, we say that you should have certain things as a right guaranteed by mm-hmm. society. And mm-hmm. so a, a universal program, obviously, it might not be, you know, you could, you could imagine it not being universally distributed appropriately, but that's a political question. So what we would say mm-hmm. is because every single person has inherent value, for a program to actually be universal, you're going to have to, you know, more resources might have to go into parts of the country, certain zip codes that have been dramatically underfunded for decades and decades. Um, and that's the only way to actually achieve something like a universal program. Uh, but like, that's, that's both like, normatively, way more fair, it just, it's like, the, it's principally way more correct and, and fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is like politically more viable. It's like yeah. having coalitions and politically more durable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really why I wanted to bring up the point about means testing, right? Like when I was watching all of these equity videos and there were, you know, all of these analogies with like the boxes or whatever, I think Kamala's video had like different little cartoon people, like struggling to reach a rope or something. And this, this, um, just what you were saying, this rhetoric of like, oh, well, you know, based on where everybody is at, we need to give them, we need to give some people like a little more of this and other people like shouldn't get a box at all. And I was like, wait, that's means testing, you yeah. know? It, and, and you know, to go back to the Bernie Sanders campaign, it reminded me a lot of when Hillary Clinton was like, I don't want to pay for Donald Trump's kids to go to college. Right. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of good commentary in Jacobin and other left outlets about how... Um, kind of disingenuous that framing is, because what you're really trying to say, I mean, we all know that means testing is the thing that 
uh, guts programs, it makes them unpopular, it makes mm-hmm. them hard to use, and ultimately it makes them weaker to attacks from the right and from capitalists. So, uh, you know, equity, I think, uh, you know, being framed as something that is, as you were saying, kind of kind of being positioned as the opposite of a universal program, I think just makes it uh, dead in the water to me. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, I have more thoughts, but actually, I think what we should do is bring in our guest because I'm sure Catherine also has she a has number lots. of thoughts. <laughs> she has many thoughts. Uh, so how about, uh, Jen, you want to start us off? Yeah, so we are now joined by, <laughs> we're just so excited to get to Catherine. We're we're now joined by Catherine Liu, who is professor of film and media studies at UC Irvine. She's also, as you know, the author of the great book, Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. Uh, but more importantly, she is our friend and one of our favorites. Catherine, it's so good to see you. I just noticed that there's this teddy bear. Okay, I'm going to block it out. That's my dog's teddy bear it's she's ripping it apart Show so it. now you can't see it oh <laughs> uh, see i oh, just yeah, hid yeah. that away from her so the, we'll get the teddy bear more integrated into the show in a little bit okay but my big head is gonna block it oh my god this is the stream yard thing where i'm like talking the wrong way hi guys i don't know about, <laughs> i have a lot of things to say because i've been in the hell of course preparation so um, we but, we also happen to know you've been sick, so hopefully you're oh, yeah, on the other yeah, 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 yeah. That was yeah. weird. I had a COVID scare too, but maybe just because I'm like on a hair trigger about this. But um, the equity, the UC stuff is really interesting because I have a colleague who kind of watches this show and he's very um, active, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Newfield. He's the head of the... Modern Languages Association. Now he retired from UCSB and he always argues for more funding from the state legislature for the UC system. And he has this, you know, great chart about how there's been declining public funding. And he keeps talking about it in terms of racism. Hmm. The more diverse the UC is, the more racist uh, California's become and they don't want to fund um, the UC. I think it's barking up the wrong tree, but people mm. really like to hear it because they like to like go like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's racism. It's racism. And I feel like privatization and the bigger picture, maybe capitalism, is the word that he doesn't want to say. But um, um, it doesn't work outside of a very small circle of people. I'll just give a big shout out if he's watching. Hi, Chris. I'm having this debate <laughs> with you. It's unfair, but you're the president of the MLA. So, um, it, Chris, if you are watching, by the way, thank you for watching. But Catherine, just to quickly follow up on your point, um, I, you know, again, not 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 to go after Chris, who, you know, thank you for watching. Um, but just more generally, you know, I think that trying to frame some kind of injustice, uh, some which like quite honestly is an injustice toward the working class as a racial justice issue. Mm. I, that is very popular among the group that you like to study the professional managerial class. And I really think it has diminishing returns. I'm with you. So for example, um, you know, the, or the example that comes to mind is Ayanna Presley and Elizabeth Warren, whenever they talk about student debt, they say it is a racial justice issue. And then they trot out all these statistics about how, you know, black Americans are, you know, have, have X amount more debt than white Americans. 
which, you know, I'm sure is true. But what ends up happening is I feel like you inadvertently, um, at least rhetorically, shrink your coalition. Well, not only that, but you also say, like, actually, there is a certain level of student debt that's acceptable that like, if yeah, everyone, right, right. it's it, yeah. it naturalizes it as like, well, that's actually, we don't we don't object to the the process of the institutions that hold up, you know, putting all these people in debt. Uh, it, but we, we just want to distribute the debt equitably, right. equally, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so that like, yeah. there's equity in the distribution of debt. So everyone has the same amount of debt. And if everyone who goes to um, college gets has to take fifty thousand dollars worth of debt out, then it's okay if white people, Asian people, and African Americans have to do um, fifty thousand dollars take fifty thousand dollars worth of debt out. I'm just realizing how crazy my office is. Okay, but whatever. also you forgot to say, you forgot Lat Latinx. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> when you were listening, Latinx, to various I, I know. I'm like really. Um, I'm very like stop Asian hate these days. So I'm <laughs> right, right. That, yeah, I, well, I want to ask you about that later. Um, but just because we kind of started off informally, um, I, I want to kind of go backward a little bit and sure. just sort of like lay out what we're here to talk about. So Catherine, we asked you on to talk about uh, what we and Piketty call the Brahmin left, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like this is very closely related to a lot of the stuff you've been saying and writing about on the professional managerial class, as I mentioned earlier. Um, again, just as a quick gloss for people who haven't heard the term Brahmin left, um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it comes from the economist Thomas Piketty. And he basically coined this term to refer to a segment of the electorate that is, you know, extremely highly educated. So definitely college degree, if not master's or PhD. Um, yeah. These people tend to live, you know, tend to be concentrated in big democratic cities on the East and West Coast, um, you know, hold very cosmopolitan values, and most crucially, uh, vote Democrat, uh, vote Democrat or vote for liberals, and now, you know, control the Democratic Party. Yeah. And um, I had hinted at this earlier, but Piketty wasn't really using the term Brahmin left as a pejorative, although like I'm sure you could do that. So he wasn't really saying like champagne socialist or limousine liberal, although, again, I'm sure there's you know overlap within all of those categories. He was really invoking this term because he was talking about the larger process of class dealignment. Right. Which, you know, again, we talk about on the show a lot. It's this phenomenon where low income low uh, education voters used to vote for center left and left parties. So in the US, the Democratic Party, in the UK, the Labour Party. Uh, and, and that basically continued um, overall through the 1950s and 1960s. So, uh, you know, what's basically happened since then is, according to Piketty, you now have a center left party in the US, which is the Democrats, which is controlled by what he calls the Brahmin elite, which is the group that I just talked about. And mm -hmm. then he says that on the other side, you have the right, which is controlled, or the Republican Party, which is controlled by what he calls the merchant right. So this mm -hmm. is this is um, high income, high wealth people who are still voting basically their class interests, right? They're voting for the Republicans who will give them tax breaks, uh, you know, who will slash social spending. Uh, and, and oftentimes, if I can interrupt for one second, they, this merchant elite, they didn't go, they, they may not have made their fortunes based on their credentials. So they didn't go to right. the elite schools. Um, mm -hmm. They might've gotten business degrees. You know, they're like, they're not as um, credentialed prestige mongers as mm -hmm. the yeah. um, problem left. 
So I want right. to. Yeah. So that's, yeah, exactly. That's the crucial difference. The Brahmin left is elite in the sense that they're highly educated, and the merchant right is elite in the sense that they're uh, high income and high wealth. But I think the problem here is clear, which is that these are both groups of elites, right? So we mm -hmm. basically have two political parties in the US, which are both controlled by a different set of elites, uh, but neither of which represent uh, the working class. And, you know, I would go so far as to say, neither of these parties represent most working people. Uh, no. So that clearly presents a problem. Um, I, you know, we, we've seen that it creates a huge vacuum for, um, you know, it, insurgent or outsider candidates, uh, Bernie Sanders being the best of them to kind mm -hmm. of come in and, mm -hmm. um, you know, advocate for a certain type of change. But then, of course, on the other side, somebody like Donald Trump or, you know, yeah. uh, God forbid, an even worse sort of smarter, uh, you know, right wing populist in the future. So. Yeah. So that's just to kind of like lay out, you know, what we mean by Brahmin left and why why I think it's important to use this term. Um, because the question that I want to lead with uh, for you and and also for Kale, I'm curious to to hear what both of you think is. Um, this obviously means that the left has a certain class composition right now, uh, and we can get into, you know, the historical factors for why that is. And actually, we should, because, Catherine, you know quite a bit about the new left, uh, I'm told mm -hmm. by Kale. So mm -hmm. we should talk about that as well. Um, but for now, uh, Catherine, I want to start with you. What is what is the major, um, I guess, drawback to the class composition of the left right now? Uh, how does the class composition of the left influence its politics and its priorities. Well, one thing that happened in the post 68 period um, when the sort of Brahmin left took over the Democratic Party or the professional, the elite, the most elite aspect of the professional managerial class took over um, progressive liberal politics is that they focused on culture and consumption. Mm -hmm. Because consumption habits, of course, they have the they have great consumption habits because they have money and their and leisure time, and um, a lot of that you know emancipatory um, language post sixty eight period had to do with you know not wanting to work the nine to five, wanting to break mm -hmm. out of the little um, white picket fence and the you know the stifling social conformity of a state of stable incomes and working class livelihoods, but um, they these people really have um so much privilege and they've accrued so much capital social and little capital that basically their cultural politics is just a way of them preserving their domination of the left liberal sphere and like actually preventing any talk of um redistribution so for me at this point government has to become a an agent of redistributive politics. There's just no way that that can change. That that cannot be the case. Of course, everything is being done by the Democratic Party to make sure that that is not the case, and they're mm -hmm. they're you know blaming Joe Manchin. But the thing is that if you look at what you were talking about with Kamala's you know equity thing and the whole um, equity versus redistribution debate. Um, all of this is just a really, really effective smokescreen to suck progressive liberal energies from um, economic issues to take attention away from economic issues to their culturalist issues. And I would go so far as to say that, you know, in a to define um, the Brahmin left in an even more like um, specific way, I think that they are the people who are educated at 
Research One University, small liberal arts colleges, and the Ivy League. Because a lot of students who go to, you know, where you're from, Boise State or, you know, these um, large tech, like Texas A&M and stuff like that, they go to college, but they learn a trade or they um, stay local. The thing about the Brahmin left is that it has no national identification. It doesn't really, it's very cosmopolitan. So they're the elites within the PMC itself. And if I, and once they, and this kind of like, um, attitude that they have, this consumerist, um, culturalist, cosmopolitan attitude sort of fills in the space of progressive liberal politics. And they say, you know, anyone who cares about the nation is a racist. That's what happened in Brexit in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it's also what hap- it, what is happening throughout Europe at this time. The EU is one of the most corrupt, most dysfunctional bureaucracies in the world, but if you're a European citizen and you're like, I hate the EU, the Brahmin left in your country will immediately come and go, you know what? You're a racist. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're exporting these um, values. This is the other thing that I think Piketty gets at a little bit, but is that the, the Brahmin left's values are being um, exported from the United States, their hegemonic values and um Global elites who go to these um, prestigious universities absorb and internalize a lot of these values. Um, the what he's talking about because he's based in France and the French situation is really effing dire. Is that the Brahmin left elites really have not just um, all the most prestigious um, credentials to take over the French system? They also have inherited wealth. And this is why the socialists are in such bad um, situation now, because if you think about all of the socialist candidates, they were the ones who lived in um, the left bank. They lived in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. They they, um, had Paris as their sort of site of like nostalgia. This is where they fought the police. Um, this is where in 68, this is where they were like anti-authoritarian. This is where they rejected the values of their provincial parents. But many of them, you know, come from these situations where they have provincial, where they had inherited wealth. If you look at the bands around Paris, like the more you move out of Paris um, uh, and excluding the um, really wealthy suburbs to the east, to the west, you just have like more, and more working class. You become more and more working class. Um, and, um, you know, um, Foucault, uh, can I get like a little dorky? Like, you know, a lot of your listeners listen to Foucault. Okay. That's why we asked you on. Okay. They they know who Foucault is. And Foucault is like the big, you know, um, primogenitor of gender theory. And, you know, he's like the, um, whatever, the, um, birthing person of gender theory and gen and um butler butlerian gender theory i don't want to say mother because it's so exclusionary you know um um but there's but um his biographer didier eribon actually wrote a book recently it's not that um it's hard to read, but he re- he writes about how it was he escaped from his working class family in Rouen, and he came out in in Paris, and he was you know Foucault's friend, and it was really great being you know gay and being part of this you know ferment in the seventies and eighties in Paris, and then he goes home to Rouen, and recently, and he realizes that being working class was actually what he hit in his Parisian cosmopolitan Brahmin left 
world. And I just think like, that's a really instructive story. That, you know, there's this tolerance, there's this liberalism that is about creating more um, awareness of sexual difference and gender difference. And all of those things are good. They come out of this kind of enlightenment idea that, you know, all of us with our differences should be able to participate in public life. But the one thing that Eribon Foucault did not want to talk about was the working class. Mm-hmm. And um, today, those working class um, communities where Ebon comes from actually are voting far right. I mean, you know, with the collapse of the French left, who who talks to those people? Who's there um, with the anger that these people have? It's the it's the far right, and you know, certain elements of the Communist Party. But the um, the French liberals and the French social democrats or the French elites really are imitating um, American identity politics. It's incredible. They've come up with like a new um, pronoun too in French. That's a gender neutral pronoun. And as we know, most Latin languages have gender in their, you know, that's embedded in the vocabulary anyway. So this kind of Brahmin elite in the, um, in um, the French situation is so much more entrenched and terrible. And even um, Macron is aware of this. And he's like, all of the leaders of the country have come from the school. What I will do is abolish the school. So it's a lot like the abolitionist movement here. Like, let's just abolish universities. I'm not for abolishing universities. I don't think that gets us anywhere. But, um, you know, it, it's so extreme in France. So this idea of the Brahmin elite left is really powerful their cosmopolitanism allows them to have this like easy anti-racist um pro-immigrant politics that's completely divorced from like economic issues as well and i mean very literally i mean vivek chibber goes after them in um post-colonialism the and subaltern studies like gayatri spivak is literally a brahmin a lot of the (laughs) third world voices third world voices who came into American academia um, from South Asia were from upper caste elites who could play the um, third worlder in the United States, mm-hmm. in Anglo-American academia. Put it that way. I don't know if I answered yeah. your question. I just went really far. I think you did. I just want to quickly <laughs> add, um, when I briefly worked in media, I noticed a sort of similar thing where like sometimes you would meet, you know, people who were, the children of immigrants and they would always that was always like a big part of their like professional uh brand and identity right and um for a long time i was like oh yeah like these these people you know like they probably have kind of the same background as me like you know their parents like came to the us uh and like i don't know like worked their way up the economic ladder yeah, to yeah. become comfortably middle class or conversely yeah. you know they're middle class in their home country and came to the us and got declassed so you know they were a doctor before and then they had to like drive a taxi or whatever in any case like everybody here is like basically middle class right no they're all third world ruling class <laughs> yeah yeah maybe yeah. not all sorry sorry if anybody is no like, but trying to do, uh, yeah. um but the those um kinds of people who are literally brahmins they um also adopt they also like really really adopted within you know, the American Cold War, American values. And um, they were really an important front in winning hearts and minds and America's anti-communism abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, so actually to, um, to quote from Piketty's extremely reasonably length book, uh, <laughs> I, I think that's how he does it too. It's right behind me. Okay, yeah. okay. Behind the bear. Um, <laughs> but, but he's saying how the, uh, you know, whereas the intellectual elite stressed uh, values of level-headed rationality and cultural openness, uh, which Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton sought to project, business elites favored deal-making ability, uh, cunning and uh, virility, um, basically saying that it's two different and complementary meritocratic ideologies. Obviously, you know, it's, it's there's this strange thing where, you know, everything left of the, of center, you know, everything is coded in, uh, like you're saying, social justice language. And it's, um, you know, this is the available option for dealing with uh, crisis or, or dealing with um, inequities, dealing with, um, you know, society's problems. Uh, and obviously it's, you know, not to, t- you know, I think Piketty's right. Not, it's not, what I'm about to say is, is right or wrong, not because Piketty's right or wrong, but I think he's yeah. right, which is basically just that uh, obviously this stuff is like useful for capital, for capitalism as like, you know, it becomes uh, a way of dealing with society's problems without actually dealing with society's problems. It's how do we live with the problems rather than, uh, you know, fundamentally change the structural uh, things that are creating these outcomes in the first place. Um, well, it, and- it, tre- it depoliticizes like right. um, radical inequality and class difference by saying it is a problem and we can solve it. Like there's an app for that or, <laughs> you know, there's an NGO for it. Um, that's the other thing that um, creates this kind of like very, very homogenized and also stultifying field of um, technical expertise that these people mm-hmm. feel like they can exercise to bring us to the um, better world, which is a world where the PMC and the Brahmin elites just solve, they solve problems. So where the right would not say like, oh, um, inequality is not a problem. It's just the way that, you know, there's like natural selection and natural Mm -hmm. hierarchy. Um, The left, the Brahmin left says, oh, this is a problem. And so much of the solutions that they most, 100% 100% of the solutions they offer are depoliticized, are, mm-hmm. um, as you say, as you guys talked about before, um, that come out of some kind of weird think tanky central, mm-hmm. you know, economist, central banking issue where it becomes means tested. It looks complex and but also reasonable and that appealed maybe in the 90s and it has no popular appeal today it's totally delegitimized too what i was going to say um that was really great about the quote that you just um cited kale is that there's for the um mercantile elites there's this idea of like negotiation and toughness Mm -hmm. and virility like definitely you know even though i've said before that trump is a very vaginal figure he definitely has that kind of like um i you know i make a deal i'm a tough guy um verbally tough guy thing and actually that persona looks more accessible more democratic than this kind of completely bizarre super sophisticated um weird technical solutionism that's coming out of the mm-hmm. brahmin left like you know um we've got a solution for that but you know we've got, we're going to start with funding the 20 percent you know the first 20 percent the next 35 percent and then we'll bring in you know um capital gains taxes to solve to balance the budget at 55 percent and when you have 
that kind of obfuscatory language, um, the kind of cathartic relief of actually saying, you know, you just have to be a tough guy and negotiate and you can get things done. That was what um, Trump um, ran on. And we have a perfect stasis now in the demo, in a democratically controlled legislature, democratically controlled executive branch, which where nothing is happening. This is actually what the Brahmin left like. They like this total stasis. Um, they don't like this kind of action virility that you just described either, Kale, because that's like toxic masculinity. Like they've actually like taken on everything that's sort of um, normative and um, subverted it in this culturalist pseudo politics, I would say. That's, you know, right. Well, well so we're, the, it, we're in a nightmare of that right now, yeah. just like a fucking nightmare. So. Right. Well, I mean, part of the thing is that, you know, insofar as these definitions are useful, Piketty is describing structural phenomena. It's uh, these processes that are occurring across the globe. Uh, you know, it's it's basically it's something it's it's a movement of all of politics. And so it's not just, you know, how individuals are changing or reacting to things. And um, and so part of the problem is that the uh, the emerging left that's uh, come about, um, you know, left populism around the world, especially in Europe. But uh, Bernie Sanders in the U.S., for instance, yeah, the, yeah. the people who are coming, you know, who are reformating the the left right now come out of the Brahmin left. And so there is this kind of constant pushback or this, this constant yeah. fight that's been going on within the left. And I do think things have gotten somewhat better, but it's there, there's this challenge of, you know, actually relearning somewhat better, somewhat better, but uh, <laughs> challenging, you know, relearning, you know, like what actually are socialist politics or universal politics or materialist politics? Um, it, how do you have like a socialist worldview as a political thinker and actor and uh, an activist and an organizer. Um, yeah. And I think and, front and, and center would be to acknowledge class as the defining contradiction. Yeah. I mean, that politics. is what it means to be a socialist. Yeah. Yeah. And not to um, say like, Oh, th- there are all these other mitigating factors. That's why like uh, in the end, I, I feel like, you know, ideas like intersectionality just exhaust you. That's another like complex thing that, you know, um, technocratically minded left people would like, like, let's just, you know, let there's this formula to adjudicate um, decision, legal decisions. And we call it intersectionality. It's, it might be good for legal situations. It's not good for politics. It just, it sounds, it's very mechanistic. It's totally obfuscating. And it takes away from like the things that actually um, give people something to fight for in common with other people. It's like the opposite of the solidarity that we would try to build. And the thing that um, is really distressing about this fight between the uh, mercantile right and the um, Brahmin left is that the Brahmin left has seeded um, all of these um, think tanks and um, foundations. And so you can like, you know, tear your hair out about the Heritage Foundation, about the Koch brothers, but there's the same process that's happening. They actually stole that page from um, sort of liberal centrist um, foundations. Like they thought the the Koch brothers thought that the left, the Brahmin left, um, had 
too much power with regard to universities and, um, you know, ideas. And so they just fought back. But um, this, there's been, there are so many rewards, let's just say, if you want to talk this language, like you mm-hmm. could get a job with the DNC, you could mm-hmm. get a job at Mellon, you could get a job at the American Prospect, you know, you could get a job with near Tandon. There, mm-hmm. this is, young people come out today, like trying to figure out what is going on, what is, what is, um, what needs to be done. They are, you know, um, faced with a really difficult situation. So they're looking at like how they can become, you know, viable as workers. And so I, I feel terrible when I'm, you know, as a, an explicit Marxist in a department that's very, very, you know, um, culturalist, because I don't know what I can offer them other mm. than like intellectual um, stimulation. There, we don't have the same institutions like socialist think tanks or, you know, David Sirota is doing God's work with um, the Daily Poster and stuff like that. And, you know, there are emerging like Jacobin institutions and media where um, you could say, like, I, I hear things that I that make sense to me. I um, want to engage in this kind of politics and I can find a community. But almost everything is working against like universalist politics, socialist politics, mm-hmm. Um uh, and there were rewards for it. It's very craven. But if you say like, oh, well, I'm worried about Bernie's sexism or racism, like there are people who might give you a job. You know, they're like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, sister, I totally get that. Like I just, you know, um, the uh, the concessions that um, Sanders had to make are, are still painful to me. They're just mm-hmm. like painful. I, I, I feel like he's been a paragon in so many ways, but... Um, we're still all trying to figure out like how you make the best, the most strongest arguments for universalist, solidaristic, class-based pol- politics, not pseudo politics. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we're we're all engaged in this conversation. We don't have the solution, but like let's let's say like someone gave you know Jacobin Foundation four hundred fifty million dollars, the endowment of Mellon. Like that would actually be a game changer. I had to, you know, to be a very materialist, to say this in a Soros, if you're listening, way. please do that. Yeah. yeah. We, we promise to all of you guys out there, we're not going to change a single idea on our head. But, you know, we, we can just um, get out to more people. That's the- <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, um, we'll, we'll have a lot of sinecures. Please, uh, please. You know, send in your applications <laughs> now. <laughs> You know, that that's how they work. And uh, it's it's a there's a material base to this. Um, we're right. And they have the money. Mm. Yeah. I, I want to follow up on, you know, some of the things you were saying about uh, intersectionality. Right. Or some of the the language, I guess, that, you know, people who are in you know grad programs in the humanities uh, or even if they're Marxists feel that they have to start start using if they want to stay competitive, you know, in this kind of Brahmin, Brahmin left circle. Um, well, actually, I guess the question that I want to ask you is maybe a little different, but but how important is language? Because this is like an ongoing debate on the left, right? Like you have you. I mean, OK, he's I don't know if he counts himself as on the left, but I recently read a New York Times article by Jamal Bowie, who like I agree with like many times. Um, mm-hmm. But he he was basically responding to this ongoing dialogue about like, oh, did the Democrats saying BIPOC and Latinx like tank their vote in oh, you know right. 2021? And he was saying, you know, uh, like, 
yes, we have these polls that show that these words are not used by most people and they're not popular. Uh, but there were, you know, much greater structural factors, such as the fact that the left has no institutions that probably played a larger role in, you know, the Democrats losing in 2021 than just mm -hmm. like somebody saying Latinx and BIPOC. And I, you know, to some extent, I'm sympathetic to that argument. I mean, we all know what kind of structural factors we're up against. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I mean, I just, I just did a segment on equity. So, you know, you, I feel like you guys kind of know how I feel about the whole language thing, but I, I, I'm just curious to hear from you guys. Like, what do you think is language, is language a problem for the Brahmin left is like how big of a problem? Okay. So I think it's more than just language. I think it's mm -hmm. like, um, um, etiquette. And yeah. an attitude. And so to be part of mm. this Brahmin left, you have to obey the etiquette. And it's etiquette that's designed to denaturalize certain kinds of relations with people you might have. And it's designed, I've said this before in other ways, to humiliate working class people mm -hmm. because they are not initiated into the etiquette. And so on that level, yes, it is a problem of like alienating the majority of people in America by coming up with these crazy ways of talking. But on another level, I mean, it can be both like there are no institutions. Then you have this crazy way of speaking. This really comes out of the post 60. And I would say the Brahmin left idea too. And it's, and I'm doing this research right now on trauma and I'm doing this research on, you know, um, Robert J. Lifton, who was one of the great anti-war um, advocates, pro-Vietnam um, vet rights. And um, what his attitude was, which was a lot of the post-68, like, um, elites who were liberal left anti-war types, is that we are going to, we're going to take this tiny slice of people who believe us, they might come out of the masses. We have this anti-war movement and we're going to wait for the majority to follow, but we're leading and it's minoritarian politics. It's like, we're right. It is correct to be anti-Vietnam war. And rather than organizing on some massive level, we're just, we're going to wait for this kind of congealing of of attitude. And that's like totally like a course in miracles, Marion Williamson, who was like so great during the 20, was it 2020 elections? She's become much more social Democrat than a lot of the stuff that came out of this progressive leftism, anti-war leftism. Lifton was a clinician and a practitioner at Yale. He worked with a lot of um, really, really distressed and disturbed Vietnam vets in New York and New Haven was that there, there was this idea that you we the age of Aquarius meant like and we were going to spark this you know revelation and people were going to follow us and I mean a lot of the internet is based upon this countercultural idea too like rather than making rather than going out and saying what do people need or talking about bread and butter issues which seem too like normy and conventional for people you would have this like in you would have this like massive um um crystallization and so from a minority politics you would create like a majoritarian um movement it never happens it's mm -hmm. like latin x no Latina wants to be called Latinx. I've heard Latinos say, actually, X is like 
really stupid because it's not even a letter that's used in Spanish very much. And so there's this, there, but there's this like idea that we're progressive and we're going to do this thing and people are just going to follow, even if they find it very alienating. It has nothing to do with improving their everyday lives. There's going to be this incredible, like, um, um, coming together. So I just wanted to like give you an example of how deep this belief is and how much of it is par- is a part of like um Brahmin left politics. I would say like Brahmin su- I would call it like the Brahmin pseudo left at this point. Mm-hmm. But um just to differentiate it from like what we want to reclaim of leftism. But um this they're, they're like in the 70s and the 80s, people thought like if we watch a lot of avant-garde films, we wouldn't objectify women, you know, is, and um, a lot of film theories based upon that. And that there was this kind of something fundamentally wrong with um, normal everyday enjoyment of cultural products, like cu- products from Hollywood. And I had this, um, I was friends with this guy who was part of, who, um, was a um, the scion of a Portuguese wine fortune. And he left his country. He'd fought in the Angola Wars. He was very, very traumatized by that. He moved to New York. He had he was the black sheep of the family, but because he was so wealthy, Portugal so poor, he was able to, you know, live this kind of like life of um, an avant-garde, you know, elite in New York City. And he had a tragic life, Martim Aviles. Um I saw him in um, Portugal in like 20, 2006, 2007, right before the crash. And he was, you know, after a lifetime of alcoholism, he was, you know, in a wheelchair. We were having dinner and um, he goes to me like, people are so passive these days. They don't want the car. They don't want the family. They don't want the white picket fence. Like they should be asking for more. And I was like, Martim. People don't have a car. They don't have a house. They don't have a white picket fence. Like you're talking about some kind of like post-war affluent mm-hmm. world in Europe and America. And that just doesn't even exist anymore. And, you know, two years later, the whole thing fell apart um, with the 2008 financial crisis. But I just realized like how important people like that were to me when I was younger and how wrong and how ridiculous like it was that he's in this wheelchair railing against today's youth for being you know passive politically passive for wanting these normie things and not joining like some kind of aspirational avant-garde elite and the the minoritarian politics of um the brahmin pseudo left is really really like a critical um ideological stumbling block right now for mm-hmm. us on um if we want to achieve socialism, like, you know, AOC is brought in. She has many things that she's good on, but she's bought into this. You know, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the squad have bought into this. Um, Cory Bush, who I really supported in St. Louis, they come, they go to Washington, they meet these, you know, they're, they're part, they become part of, they become initiated into this etiquette. And then mm-hmm. instead of saying mother, they're saying birthing person. It's like, what that mother who can't buy formula for her kid does not want to be called birthing person. You know, it's like if you're doing, I was in New Haven and there was a woman who couldn't, who was worried that her WIC card didn't have $17 on it because, mm-hmm. and she was buying food to feed her family. Does she want to be called birthing person? Will that make a difference? Who's feeling good about themselves by not using the word mother? This is an et- etiquette. 
um, fetishism that actually works against working class interests because mm-hmm. the working class is not going to follow. And they're the mo- majority of Americans, actually. And this is like just a big F you yeah. to the majority of Americans. They don't want this kind of etiquette. They don't want to be told that you can't use these words. They're just actually trying to survive. So if you want to depoliticize people and make them feel totally alienated, then just fetishize the language, fetishize right. the language. Don't um, fight for uh, material interests. I mean, on the subject of politicians, I also want to quickly point out that, uh, you know, the politicians who don't conform to that etiquette, and of course, Bernie Sanders comes to mind, although, you know, he like once in a while, he'll kind of like veer into that into that territory. But I think that the reason why he does sometimes go there is because he was punished by the media and by liberal commentators for not adhering to that etiquette, uh, especially in 2016. Mm. Yeah, well, there's also... Coming off of that and, and what you were talking about of this kind of like, well, if you just if you just change your behavior, then people will, you know, automatically correct to it. That if we all mm-hmm. say, let's get behind this new way of talking, um, that's how you, in fact, like change society. There's like kind of the spread of good ideas or something good in their mind, maybe. But um, there was also, I think, like a, a different kind of version of that around Bernie that had to do with kind of a similar mindset of like, if you build it, they will come this whole, like, even when you have a politician who's putting forward like a really substantive and and important platform, that's actually addressing people's real needs. The fact that like, you just have a good idea and a good platform and um, Mm -hmm. you know, and a great politician, good looking guy going around talking about this, that does not automatically, you know, make a movement that does not automatically bring people to your side And that Mm -hmm. to the extent that Bernie was successful in winning elections, when he did win uh, primaries and caucuses, it largely, I think, had to do with like the the amount of canvassing, the amount of active campaigning that was going on of convincing people to say, yeah, actually, it is worth it uh, to get involved in this. And, you know, even, you know, of course, I need health care, but you're actually saying that we have a chance of winning this new program. And that's inspiring me to get involved. And Mm -hmm. and but I do think Mm -hmm. this is like maybe that seems obvious and hopefully it should be for more people on the left, but it is this kind of persistent thing of like faltering into kind of an idealism of just like, mm-hmm. we just have good ideas. And mm-hmm. it's, the problem is that mm-hmm. people don't see our ideas. Um, like we need to just like, if only people heard us more, if we yell louder, we publish more books or something. If we, you know, we're very active on Twitter, which obviously Twitter is not where most people are and especially working people. It's mostly middle-class people mm-hmm. yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If only we did more outreach or something, then, you know, politics would look different. But, you know, the thing is that like um, in study after study, like working class people, Jennifer Silva's study of um, coal countries, an example of this, they say things, they say things like, you know, both, I don't vote because both parties don't care. Like it makes no difference to me. Those Mm -hmm. both parties just um, hate the working class people. Like they hate my community. It will make no difference. That's actually a correct analysis. Right. And so you have to go from there. Like, I'm not going to teach you Marxism, Leninism. I'm going to say you are actually (laughs) completely right. And that's where you start. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact is that, um, Trump could kind of speak to them. They could kind of reach this 
But we need some kind of scalar, like media reach at this point. And what's really frustrating, and when you read about like the 1996 deregulation of communications, telecommunications, there is no real um, not-for-profit media anymore. Like NPR is a joke. Um, PBS is a joke. They're just, they really are the last bastions of the Brahmin left. They're so smug. It's unbelievable. Um, We need that kind of reach. And McChesney, Robert McChesney, television critic, and Bernie said this too. It's like, we need Mm -hmm. publicly funded journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, we need that kind of reach. It's hard to get to every single person. There were people who were being interviewed. There was a young woman who was being interviewed in Mississippi, I remember, like during the primaries. And they were, and, you know, it was an NPR interview and I was listening to it in the car. And this woman said, the the interviewer said, you know, do you know what um, Bernie Sanders is standing for? And she goes, no. And she goes, you know, universal healthcare, free community college, like, this would actually help you because you're, you know, a young mother and you're going to community college. And she goes, oh, oh, that sounds interesting. That sounds great. Um, but she hadn't even been reached by the campaign, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, um, the way that the media covers the left is just stupid and awful mm-hmm. and horrible. But the but people are tuning out. Here's what's also interesting about the media is that we, if we get to a million people that would be amazing because i think the average fox show only reaches 2.7 million people and they are like the high the most watched news show in america <laughs> right now um msnbc and cnn don't even break a million mm. most time, days so when you look at how fragmented the media has become it's really incredible and how it's exhausting and and tiresome to listen to um, people try to be reasonable when we don't live in reasonable times. And I think that's why NPR doesn't um, get a bigger audience. It's all like, you know, I live in Cambridge in my $2 million house and, oh my God, I'm really worried about this. Like I used to (laughs) listen to, you know, like cling to NPR during the Bush years because I was like, the world is going mad. There's an idiot in charge. (laughs) These people are smart. They're talking about things like this. And I, and I, and, um, you know, thank God, like, I've just been completely disillusioned and deprogrammed by this. But I was also thinking about how, like, materially speaking, I was terrified to say that I was a Marxist or a socialist because my parents went to China in 72. My father hadn't seen his family since 49, right after Nixon went to China. And the FBI and the CIA came to visit our house, like, mm-hmm. a month or two after we were back. I mean, there's just, it was, there was persecution of anyone with communist associations. So like, I was very, very, I spent a lot of my life going, you know what, I have to hide these views or else I can't make a living or else, you know, I'm going to like, um, um, betray my family or something like that. And now I feel like at least we can, that is an improvement. At least we can talk about this openly, but how do we create reach? Now, how do we build these infrastructural institutional, um, structures that we need to have like the next time a a Bernie comes around or if it is Bernie to have that platform where we can reach people. You know, that's the, that's the uh, $64,000 question. And um, yeah. And, and the Brahmin left are just really happy not to um, not to engage with the 67% of Americans who did not go to college and do not go to college. So NPR, all of those small like media fragments, they um, they hold the Brahmin left in in a in its structure right now. 
and we, you know, we're, we want to create some kind of change. When Bernie said like he was going to come up, it was not just universal health care and, you know, and free public college he was fighting for, but like the full funding of media and journalism, like non-profit media journalism. I was like, that's how you sustain a universal program. Not by like, by having like not-for-profit journalists who are able to do deep dives, who are able to talk about universal questions, who are not like trying to find the new woke thing so they can mm-hmm. get a job with Vanity Fair next month or something. Do you guys how crazy mainstream liberal media is right now and their obsession with January 6th? Oh, right? yeah. There's like this media conformity about that. There's so many other things that are happening right now in the country. And that's what they're obsessed with. So that's why people in Appalachia, people in Detroit, people in downtown LA are going to be like, you know what? That has nothing to do with me. Politics has nothing to do with me. Um, the media has nothing to do with me. You know, on this on the subject of messaging, though, um, something that I was just thinking about um, as you were talking is, you know, uh, I, I think this happened in both 2016 and 2020. But, you know, when, when Bernie was running, um, you would often hear people on the left trying to get him to say radical things in public. So for example, there he, you know, yeah. he took a lot of heat for not supporting open borders. He took a lot of heat for oh, not supporting defund the police. And, you know, lots of leftists were like, you're a public, you're a huge public figure. Like you should be saying these things, you know, you should be embracing these ideas publicly. And that kind of struck me as like also not, I mean, that's like I feel like that kind of just presupposes that Bernie's whole role is to like shift the Overton window or to like, I don't know, provoke people. And like, that wasn't his project either. No, but I also feel like um, Bernie probably, Bernie had a grasp of open borders that he couldn't like talk about. Like he actually believes in economic nationalism. I know that that's not popular, but there is, there's no way that you can talk to working class people and have a connection with them and still support open borders. I mean, even the mo- most recent working class immigrants, some of whom I know who are Asian and some of whom I know who are uh, Latinx, they're like, no, you can't have open borders. Like I came, but there, there is this dysfunction when you have this like, um, um, open border situation, and it's eventually going to be the working class people who are going to be suffering from that. Mm-hmm. And we have to figure out how to have like proper border controls and sort of national programs that people within the U.S. can um, benefit from. And so they saw very clearly that if you're going to have um, universal health care, you have you can't have open borders. You can't. Yeah. And um, and I think Bernie was like very. Yeah, Bernie was very like careful about all of those things mm-hmm. because I think he also has the right, you know, he has his heart in the right place with regard to working class people and their interests. Um, the other thing, defund the police. I know this is going to be like really um, unpopular, but I'm going to say this right now. That is also a Brahmin left thing to say because the I don't think it's unpopular. In, or I mean, like okay, I think that we, we have live the in neighborhoods empirical. where there's no crime. So, or very little crime. So we can say that. And the other thing about defund the police, it it has massive, you're fired energy. 
And we love that in America. We love that. And that's like massive Trump energy. Like you're fired. You're going to, you're never going to have a job again. You're never going to eat in this town again. And that energy was um, something that I, I also think Bernie didn't want to um, yeah. take um, part in. And um, we live in the, and defund the police is another easy thing for people to take, take on as a kind of badge of honor within the Brahmin left. Um you know, the most extreme cases of my um, colleagues in the UC are people who want abolition of universities right. too, right? I mean, oh, right, right. I, I just feel like, you know, they are really like um, pursuing this kind of um, niche radicalism mm-hmm. that gives them like kudos within these small circles that are really, really um, unpopular with most Californians. Like, I see these like first generation kids, they call them first gen, I, I freaking hate that actually, working class kids with their parents coming onto this campus, on, on campus, and they're so proud of going to the mm-hmm. university. Their kids are so proud. The parents are proud. It's like, you're going to fucking take that away from people? It's all about like taking away things when right. you talk about that. Yes, we should definitely abolish mm-hmm. the um, system that the three strikes you're out system, the punitive carceral system that we have. But um, you know, the reality is, um, crime happens in working class and in inner city um, neighborhoods. And those people, Dina, look at what mm-hmm. happened in New York with Eric Adams. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. There's majority, there's majoritarian politics the left doesn't want to participate in right now, which to me is just crazy. And if we even say that, then if we on the left say that, then we're immediately called like racist, reactionaries. Mm. You know, I've been called the Tucker Carlson left. I'm just like, if I could get like Tucker Carlson's audience, I would be so happy right, if yeah. I had two million people <laughs> we'll to it. talk to because I'm just like so upset when I think about like just the numbers, you know, just like sheer numbers. Yeah, you need more reach. Well, I, I do think there. I think there's a useful distinction to be made between like majoritarian politics and then maybe a subcategory that we can call mass politics. And mm-hmm. maybe yes. maybe I'm being overly definitional, but so for instance, I do think something like. Um, the women's march, you know, that has that's mass or excuse me, that's majoritarian politics in some sense of like, or maybe, well, okay, that's actually maybe that's not the right example, but there is like these. <laughs> okay, let me start over. There are things where like liberals and people, you know, left of uh, liberalism, you know, will get involved in that are you know these big you know uh, social phenomena that. Uh, you know, so again, the Women's March is one of them where it's a bunch of people getting involved and, you know, doing protests. Um, but it's not really mass politics in the way that mass politics have historically been understood in the, in the sense of like how you actually like organize people um, that I, I think there's a couple things that are worth like drilling down on when it comes to mass politics that it's first of all, like it's its orientation is universalist. It's, it's philosophy rather it's, it's, is universalist that, um, you know, that it, mass politics really is involved in trying to change the actual, you know, um, you know, what it, what, who gets what in society, the actual allocation of resources and, and doing it on grounds that say, you know, every single person has certain inherent worth and inherent value. Um, but it's also, you know, it's it's also rooted institutionally. It's not just like kind of populist, spontaneous. It's 
Um, you know, it's not something where, you know, people run out into the streets because they're upset with something, um, which happens, that happens all the time, but that's not really politics. It's not like a political expression in the way that mass politics are, where you have like actual things that keep it going day to day, week to week, month to month that, you know, when people get tired and need to go in after their protest, uh, the politics, like the political thrust doesn't, you know, dissipate. It's like, it's actually continue yeah, through yeah, having yeah. parties, unions, institutions. Um, and also I think it's like, I think that the big difference historically with like mass politics for the left really has been about, I mean, mass politics really is a left phenomenon. It's an understanding that these problems are structurally uh, created by capitalism, that there's an actual class structure and uh, a certain kind of, logic of, you know, how businesses, you know, make their profits, um, that, and that's what drives our society forward. Um, the understanding that's where things, you know, inequality and exploitation and oppression, all these things primarily are derivative of, and so therefore the actual mass politics, it's not just like this kind of movement of movements. It's not, you know, everyone's doing their own thing. And, you know, if you're doing your thing over there and I'm doing my thing over here, the cumulative effect on just doing a little bit of something and changing society in some way leads to some better society overall actually is some. Sorry, Cam. Oopsies. Well, I'm going to wait for you to come on. Oh yeah. He's going to come on. No, what I was going to say like about the women's March and a sustainable movement that could be built on women's rights or, you know, um, universal programs for women. Um, did, it did kind of happen when um, Matt Brunig really worked on um, child care subsidies and and the children child tax credit, right? And mm-hmm. uh, he did all that economic um, analysis. Then you had like women's rights and women's marginalization objectification really highlighted by the um, women's march. But there was a sustained like, what is the politics of like f- focusing on women's um women's issues. And mm-hmm. so the child tax credit really sort of builds up out of um, not just um, a kind of um, spectacular demonstration of discontent with Trump. I really mm-hmm. feel like there was like a layered thing, like where you could say, and the Bruniks did this, you know, um, normal people want socialized childcare. And that's mm-hmm. really important. Um, the sort of avant-garde aspect of the um, Women's March was the pussy hats. Now, a lot of women, like women of color, church-going women, and my late grandmother, they would be horrified by pussy hats, right? But the pussy hat was like this niche thing that people felt like they could wear and immediately signal belonging to um, Mm -hmm. a movement. So the sustained movement that could come out of Um, a protest movement like that would be, I would say, like focusing on the dignity of women at work, the dignity of women's work, the necessity of social subsidies for childcare, for um, family um, leave, like all of these like nitty gritty um, economic issues that, you know, really shape women's lives, normal women and everyday women. And then also include like, um, you know, women, gay women, gay rights, it can be more inclusive, but you has to be built on like creating dignity for mm. working women and that and create and showing that, you know, 
um, a collective effort has to be made to produce better outcomes for young mothers, for mothers, for working mothers, for mothers of all different races. And, you know, the the PMC Brahmin elite mothers, they can afford $1,700 a month in childcare or even more, $2,400 a month in paying their nannies. But average working class, normal American women, even middle class women, they who want to be mothers or who have young children, they need a structured support. And I, and I feel like Brunig, Matt Brunig worked on that. He created the numbers. And so there was this, the child tax credit, which first came out under Trump, and which is now being sunset under Biden, ironically, um, comes out of this idea of taking ordinary women's interests and problems and focusing on them. And not just, and maybe there is this like spectacular 200,000 person march on Washington. But if you focus on working women's issues and the dignity of being a working woman at this point and how degrading culturally Trump is, but also how horrible like the works, the employment structure is for women and for families, that can be really compelling. And that can be something that you, you know, have as you don't need to, um, you know, bring marks up front, right up in center, but you can reach out to people who are more family oriented on the socially conservative side and say, you know what, mm-hmm. this kind of economic program would be better for families in America, mm-hmm. period. And so there was some good that came out of it. Like I was really mad about um, the whole pussy hat thing, but um, to focus on um, these material issues and the issues of work and women, I think um should be should uh, should be um our task as leftists to say you know these are really important things about women but we about women's rights but we can't just focus on you know one singular event we have to look at how like all the political structures of our um of our country need to be transformed for women so child care like just like fucking child care a dsa meeting would make things different but no one thinks about this because everyone's like, you know, I'm a childless kid in Brooklyn. But there are like, these are issues that like parents just are so exhausted thinking about. They can't really be political, but because they're, you know, just trying to raise their families. But is there a left group that can say, we have your back. Like, we want to give you this. Like, this is what you should have. I don't know. The the Brahmin left is like just creating these like weird culturalist things that like make people who are very tired working all the time think, oh my God, I can't learn another thing like this. Like, what is that? I think part of the problem, and I definitely mm-hmm. don't have any answer for this, but I do think that there are people on the left who want to create these structures, who want to, you know, get childcare at every meeting or whatever. Um, right. I, I I don't know. Kale, maybe you can say more about it. Kale's the only one who like organizes with DSA. So like maybe he has the insider information. I, I, um, I'm not. I, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, I do think that um, the awareness and the will is there, but at the same time, there's still this huge disconnect, right? Or this huge gulf that like, I don't know, we don't know how to close. Yeah. I mean, I think some of it is, um, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's like a will that, you know, people are becoming more and more aware of like what the challenges are internally. Um, and if anything, I think the left has probably been doing 
you know, a fairly decent job of figuring out some of kind of the internal procedural problems, or at least I spent a lot of time thinking about it and some stuff comes out better than others. Um, but I think part of that challenge is of course, the, the fact that it's kind of filtered through, you know, some of these fights end up becoming, you know, proxy battles for, you know, actual mm. politics of like what are actual priorities of the people involved. And so, um, you know, there's, everyone thinks that there's like something morally horrific about our current situation. And, but then like the actual class interests of people involved end up becoming a factor in how they think about what are the priorities now? What are the actual things we should be spending our time on? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's actually, that's the part that I was going to say before the internet cut me off uh, a moment ago. Um, The internet doesn't like like, your class reducing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Seriously. Um, is the fact that I think like effective mass politics in order to like make your politics be something that is something that has mass appeal. It's majoritarian, but it's actually like massively organized and like has the capacity to, you know, knock on millions of doors of, you know, to run elections, to run campaigns, to, um, you know, actually effectively push politicians to win union Mm -hmm. fights, et cetera. I do think like, like effective left mass politics understands that capitalism is the thing that structurally creates these these problems and mm-hmm. i think for a lot of people and this is where i was saying before i don't know how much it got through but um you know if you're doing your campaign over here and i'm doing mine over there and you know we spend our time doing our things i think there's like this thought that you know if everyone's doing a little bit to change the world you know it no matter how small the campaign it's like some kind of cumulative effect and it's in fact all kind of adding up to some kind of like tidal wave of you know progressive change Justice. or something yeah but that's not in fact how it works because right. of capitalism because of the fact that like it in fact organizes our opposition and our enemies the ruling class and it disorganizes us and so to, to the extent that we're like working mm-hmm. on our little project here, you're doing a little thing there. It really, that's the new age formula. Like yeah. you, like there'll be a moment of revelation. Everything will crystallize. Yeah. Right. But so like understanding that it's capitalism means that like you actually have a, a strategy where all these efforts, you know, and some of these, I'm not, not to disparage people doing, you know, like someone organizing uh, their tenants in a building, you know, that's a yeah. local fight, but like, that's a useful, good fight. Um, but you have to understand it as part of a collective movement and a collective fight um, where, you know, your efforts are, you know, connected to the efforts of other people doing their part that, um, and that's again, where you need institutions to actually root this in a real way. So it's not just, you know, everyone doing something kind of, you know, on their own, separate from everyone else. Um, but then that means you actually have, you know, better use of resources. You actually pick and choose fights. You actually have priorities where you say, this is the fight we need to pursue now, not this other one, even though it's morally important. Uh, and that, I think, remains, you know, probably one of the biggest problems for the left now of understanding how to pick priorities um, and picking priorities coming out of kind of a coherent, uh, actual political project that, um, you know, when you call your, you know, you call other people comrades at the DSA meeting and then go like shit on them on Twitter afterwards. Uh, you know, it's not really, you know, it's, it's bad cultural practice uh, inside, but it's also just like, you know, completely unfocused and completely, you know, just like not actually addressing the actual challenges of capitalism that like working people, you know, could really use left solutions for. 
Um, you know, one of the things is that you're describing is just a lack of organizational discipline. And DSA has always been, you know, um, big tent. So they don't want to have this kind of um, um, organizational discipline. Anyways, it's a it's a pluralist organization. And that's both its, you know, strength right now, I guess, because it's sustained itself for much longer than most left parties in the United States. And it's one of its great weaknesses because I think that um, the produce, because the ideological production of liberal and pseudo left politics is basically monopolized by the Brahmin left and or the PMC elites, if you want to call them that. They, they learn this stuff in, um, you know, they go to college and they learn this stuff. And this is, these are the things you have to say. These are the things you have to say to get grants, to get jobs, mm-hmm. to um, um, be recognizable in the left liberal sphere. And so it's really hard for people to separate what, how, what they've internalized from, I'd say, like ideological indoctrination by the Brahmin left, even if it goes against their own interests. Um, they're vying for some kind of like symbolic superiority in a space where um, very little seems to be at stake. It's like every DSA meeting then could become a faculty meeting, which would be a freaking nightmare. But um, um, <laughs> so it's just so I so I I um I I don't know what the solutions are. Mm. Um, I do know that there are within like when a single party takes over, like when a party takes over, when a Leninist party takes over, they distribute goods, they distribute positions. And there's no, the left doesn't have that. Now, if Bernie had won, it wouldn't have just meant like the transformation of American politics. Like a lot of these young kids who are, you know, unhappy with the way things are um, and who are being captured by the language of the Brahmin left or the PMC elites, they would be um, forced to reevaluate their own politics and their class positions because Bernie would have offered, um, the Bernie administration just offers a different kind of um, opportunity to participate in politics. Like the defeat was like so um, sound in so many ways, like the American system is not going to let that happen. And when I look very practically at how a party distributes goodies when it wins an election, a lot of that distribution realigns um, politics. And that's what's really, you know, tonic about um, electing a powerful left politician. I want to switch gears slightly and ask you about Asians. <laughs> um, I've been dying to ask you about Asians. Uh, so what I want to ask is this. So we have started to notice the movement of particularly working class Asians and Latinos away from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. That was a huge theme in the election earlier this year. Yep. Um, and Asians are kind of an interesting case in America as as a racial group, because there are a lot of Asians, um, you know, because of immigration patterns. I mean, we can get into that, whatever. There are a lot of Asians that could be classified as, you know, upper income or professional managerial class. Mm. At the same time, I do feel like the Brahmin left, while they, I think, still sort of pay lip service to Latinos, 
usually by lumping them in in the term black and Latino or black and brown. Like, I feel like they could not care less about Asians. It's, um, ne- it's and- never black, brown, and yellow bodies when they speak that <laughs> right, language. Right, right. The bodies are never yellow. Black, brown, yellow <laughs> bodies are at stake. It's like, no, not, not yellow bodies. No, no. Yellow, okay. In any case, I, I, and it sounds like you agree that the Brahmin left, you know, does not care at all about Asians, whether that is, you know, I mean, especially working class Asians, but doesn't really even seem to be that interested in the professional managerial class Asians, although obviously some of those Asians are part of the Brahmin left themselves. But Mm. I guess my question for you is like, what does this mean then for the relationship of, you know, Asians, which obviously is a sort of vast and diverse group to the left, right? Because I can see that like a lot of the, you know, standard Chinese successful business owners, like we're probably just always part of the merchant right anyway. So like that was never part of any left coalition. But the thing that really kills me about the, you know, working class, the movement of working class Asians away from the Democratic Party in this last election cycle is that Basically, all the social science that we had from the 90s up until like a month ago showed that Asians were moving toward the Democratic Party. Um, And part of that is that Asians have very, as I'm sure you know, Asians really prioritize economic issues, bread and butter issues, uh, you know, universal health care, free public higher education. I mean, and so I just feel like it's a huge missed opportunity. So this is a long-winded way of saying, talk to us about Asians. Well, I don't know. Like, um, I just saw that Asians were called white people now in Washington state. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, that explains We're it. white now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, Jen. Because uh, All my white. panel tonight. I mean, Sorry, you're guys. white. I mean, I'm white. <laughs> right. I'm white. Yeah. No, blame um, blame at academia for, you know, taking away the diversity of this panel tonight. That's the... I know. I know. Right? Right. We're just... But... Um, the the thing about the new immigrant class is, and um, its identification with the merchant right is that you know they Asians even if they're working class think of themselves as ha- of being as being on their own, and so there's mm-hmm. this um, sense of having been abandoned by rule of law or governments, and you just want to have a um, um, the freedom to prosper, but for working class Asians, I think increasingly they become, you know, aware that um, capitalism is a rigged game against them, and um, I think it has a lot to do with the politics of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party thinks like they've just captured minority votes, and the Dem- and the Republicans are so racist. Um, no non-white person, even though we're like Asian Americans, would ever vote for them in number. But I think Asian American voters are the largest, are growing at a greater rate than any other um, minority group at this point. But the Democratic Party politics right now is, and the Brahmin left's um, Democratic Party politics has to do with like recruiting black PMC elites, black Brahmin elites, and um, maintaining that as their structural um, diversity. Like there's, so the it's going to be the Brahmin left with Obama as the great example, although I think, you know, he came up through the um, PMC and the um, Brahmin elites, the big donors, big money, Democratic Party um, funders who have this alliance. And they think that they're going, they're, they've captured um liberal politics and everyone else will just have to follow. 
it's an unbelievably, you know, sort of um, blinded way about thinking about even thinking about diversity and um, every, but every other minority has to be subsumed under the vision of this kind of Brahmin elitism. And so if you want to aspire to um, representation, you just have to follow the ways in which the PMC elites of African-American origin have entered the Democratic Party. And I think um, Latino people and Asian Americans are rebelling against that. I think that there's another um, um, segment of the American population that was very, very open to um, um, democratic poli- or left liberal politics. And those are Muslim Americans. A lot mm. of the South Asians are also counted as Asians. And they're also, they come from like very repressive totalitarian regimes. They want to come here and they want to be um, free to prosper. And then the racial politics of the Democratic Party are so alienating that um, if you're not really like part of the elite elite in these um, circles and you're going to just, you know, imitate um, Democratic Party elites in this kind of bipolar um, diversity structures, then you aren't, then they just get very alienated from the Democratic Party. The other thing is that the Asian American community is really complex, like by na- like many, many nations um, fall under that um, rubric. Mm-hmm. And I also think like there's very few like race leaders that can come out and say like, I represent the Asian American vote. And then They're the trying. Democratic Party can take you and say, oh yeah, you represent your community. I mean, one thing I would say like that's good about that is that there is no racialized community uh, that, um, you know, um, Kendi represents or um, Tanisi Coates represents. Like mm-hmm. the communities I think that um, um, African-American leaders represent are um, religious communities, like the AME church. If you're the pastor of that church, you actually have a community. Tennessee Cooks doesn't have a community. He has a readership. He has a very PMC readership. Kendi doesn't have a community. But the Asian Americans can't, they're, they're not recruited to be like race representatives in the same way. Like they tried in the New Yorker with Jia Yang Fan, who's like um, an anti-communist um, PRC origin writer who writes very well, but she doesn't really speak for Chinese Americans, although you know, the New Yorker would like her to take that role. It's really hard to be that person because there are Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, mm-hmm. the nationalities and the recent immigration questions all take up like a lot of space and it's not just the class situation. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that the liberal elites in America, the prominent elites always thought of Asian Americans as being like conformists, right? Mm -hmm. So we talked about like the avant-gardism of the post 68 Brahmin left. Like I just have this great idea and I just make this three minute (laughs) film and it's so awesome. And you guys are going to watch and be transformed. Like the last person you want to appeal to is an Asian American because you think they're just like reactionaries. They don't, They don't even, you know, they don't care about the stuff. The other thing is, you know, frankly, like the equity issue that you just described, Jen, Mm -hmm. before, is based on affirmative action. And Asians are against affirmative action. We saw this with um, the attempt by, you know, um, de Blasio's um, um, regime to get rid of the magnet schools. 
All mm-hmm. those working class kids who take the subway two hours a day to go to Brooklyn yep. Tech or Stuyvesant, their parents are working night and day to give yeah. them those opportunities. And they're oftentimes like not middle class Asian Americans who are. No, they're disproportionately they're poor. working class and they yeah. really believe in, you know, the educational system. And that might come from, you know, um, a cultural thing that comes from an immigrant thing. But I often think like if the genius thing would be for the Republican party, but they're not that smart to um, run an anti-affirmative action, socially liberal, economically conservative Asian American candidate in California. They can win. They could win with that. They can't win now. They're like the GOP in California is like a joke and California politics are terrible because the democratic party, as you talked about um, is dominated by the Brahmin left in San Francisco and LA and orange County. And there's like no movement. We have, you know, huge numbers of homeless people. The inequality is just through the roof, but Mm -hmm. you know, what they want to do is, um, reduce the number of Asian Americans in the UC Mm -hmm. system. And Asian Americans know that the democratic party wants to do this. Right. Yeah. And London breed wants to create a city of African Americans with Latinos and Asian Americans marginalized in San Francisco. Like that's her politics. And the democratic party's like, yeah, that's really good. And the Asian American (laughs) working class people and Latino working class people are furious, but there's no other like party. Right. Uh, the Latino and Asian American young people went broke for Bernie like crazy. Oh, I know. <laughs> like the demographics were crazy. So if you ran a socialist in California against this democratic machine, like you could maybe make a little dent. But if you ran a GOP person who is anti-affirmative action, Asian American or Latino, like that would be. Like uh, a and like did like a I've light thought of, sprinkle of economic this, populism. Yeah, I thought of yeah. doing this like Trojan horse thing. Yeah, and then, yeah, like, you're going to be that candidate. Like, come out. Every yeah. every Not Californian just, watching, please take note. I'm nationalizing everything. <laughs> I'm nationalizing your forty five million dollar um, mansion. But hey, man, I ran as a GOP person, <laughs> so um. So it's yeah. it's really like insulting. Like the Democratic Party politics are just insulting to Asian, working class Asian Americans and Latinas. Yeah. And they know that. Like, here's yeah. the other thing. It's like people know when they're being screwed. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to lecture to people about them being screwed. Yeah. Well, so um, we're kind of getting at the end of our time. Yeah. Um, right, right. But one last question, maybe. <laughs> yeah. On this point, though, that people people know when they're being screwed. There is something of a left now in America that also knows that and wants to do something about it. Um, But it seems like the most fatal problem, at least right now, is that the the post-Bernie, the Bernie, whatever you want to call it, the Bernie left, the left right now in America is still submerged within the Brahmin left, the broader kind of like liberal, uh, professional elite kind of circles. Um, That's where they come out of. That's where they work. That's where they live. Those are their social circles. Um, and it affects their politics. And I think the biggest thing is that there's just this massive uh, disconnect where left politics, the people who do left politics are not a part of the working class. And yet they say, Mm -hmm. working class, you are our subject. You are going to change the world for us. Um, You're the good ones. Uh, But here's, here's how you should act. Here's how you should talk. You know, if you have certain ideas in your head, that's bad. Um, and you're morally yeah. depraved, and that's not yeah. everyone on the left. Obviously, I think like that, <laughs> no, but that's, that's a lot a, of people on the left. Yeah. Well, it's it's certainly it's an 
I think it's oversized um, when it comes to like online presence, for instance, that like a lot yeah. of the people that end up writing about this kind of stuff online, you know, that fit that category. I don't think it represents everyone on the American left, but um, it's enough people that it's a problem. And so I guess the question really ends up being, you know, like looking ahead, given the fact that, uh, you know, stakes are pretty high, both for like general, you know, like the everyday issues of like, you know, people, you know, we live it, we're several years into a pandemic and there are massive lines for like getting COVID tests. Like we just don't have a healthcare system in this country. Um, you know, wages are stagnant. There's like these everyday issues. And then there's, you know, uh, the massive issues of like, you know, impending what what happens if there's another kind of like disease, you know, like it, there's going to be subsequent COVIDs in the future, climate change, um, you know, like economic downturns that come around, you know, every, you know, business cycle or so. And, you know, sometimes they're way worse than others. And there's all these like massive issues. Um, the fact that Republicans are, are willing to, you know, destroy democratic process. Um, and, the the left is stuck in this like in this milieu where it actually just cannot reach the people that you know historically have been the ones that have you know working class people and organized workers have brought about democracy and uh you know greater um egalitarian uh situations where resources are in fact redistributed more fairly um what and like the thing is that like there is nothing yeah it's what to do but also like i think it's worth saying that you know there's nothing that says that there has to be a left in this country like the fact that there is anything of a left right now um it could just be all ephemeral we could all just be you know you know Mm -hmm. at uh, 10 years down the line went wow okay i guess i guess it all just kind of went fascism and you know we we were (laughs) online tweeting um I was online making fun of post-structuralists, but I yeah. feel like it's a house of cards. You know, I really want to like keep poking at it and like I just want to see the whole thing collapse. This kind of like avant-gardeism within my the subverting of the norms, mm. the BS, you know, um stuff that I have but that we live with. But I also think we are like I don't want to exaggerate, um, at the end of some civilizational moment. Like it's really scary. Yep. What would be let's for 2022, it's the end of the year. It's time to like, you know, think about what we can do better in 2022. We can, you know, all be better people by being better leftists. How should we contribute to a better, healthier left in America? um, So that, you know, it sounds very like Trotskyist, but like, you change a little bit, you change your comrades, you change your institutions, but like, you know, what, what actually should like the, you know, the left be doing given these kind of structural constraints, both internally and externally. I've got an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone work out more. Do I like left it. boot camp. <laughs> be in shape. Get in shape. Get and ripped. Get ripped. Do infiltrate sports, infiltrate the NFL, infiltrate the NBA, infiltrate the MLB, infiltrate the USTA. There's there's one thing you can do. People like sports in this country. Don't look down on them. Get in shape. Stop thinking like you're really cool by being subcultural and um, looking down on the military sports and complex. I also think like reaching out to the military having DSA in the military, understanding like what those stakes are, 
those are little tiny things that we could do, like ideological pu- public education. Don't talk down to people. Go where they are and reach people who are doing sports. Yeah. Play sports. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that sounds very trivial, but I will continue to make fun of people in my profession. But you guys <laughs> all like get really mm. in good shape. Yeah. I, 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 I'm with you, sort of. I'm with you, sort of. But I do think, I really do think like having... um understanding like that there are certain institutions where people are working who are unhappy like unions and that and professional sports leagues and also um making like i have this dream this is crazy but um you know i was you know leo's 21 now so i'm you know i no longer have a child child i have an adult child but i was like if i could have had like socialized sports for him when I was little. Yeah. Like if DSA could run like sports leagues, like that would just reach so many people. Sorry. And maybe no. like maybe like DSA Discords and Dungeons and Dragons. Like <laughs> have more um left content publicly yeah. everywhere, but like infiltrate within like stop getting into these fights where you know you'll be stabbed in the back by some holier than thou dsa member but just be like let's have like dsa sports leagues you know like soccer um hooligans and soccer teams were so important in so many um transformational social revolutions like all of the factories in Russia, pre-revolution had soccer teams. Um, soccer came out of Northern England, which was also like factory-based um, heart of the Industrial Revolution. Like understand, like play some serious team sports, get out there and um, have socialist sports leagues. That's my, um, that's my yeah. prescription. I, I do know at least two people who play on a socialist soccer team. Uh, and <laughs> getting outed right now, you know who you are. Um, I hope they're watching. I, I do think, uh, if, if the American left looked more like uh, a sports stadium and not and, and less like a, like a grad seminar, I think that would be a massive improvement. That's the... I know that Rod Laver, who's like one of the best tennis players ever, he's like 90 now, die. His brother is an anarchist and a leftist in Brisbane and a, and a tennis coach. And like there were, there was an Australian left that was like totally involved with um, tennis. So I, that's like a very concrete thing that I think you can do to reach people's everyday lives. Yes. Less like, let's be less like a graduate seminar, more like sports teams. On that yes. note, Catherine, it has been a pleasure as always. Uh, okay. This was so great. We've we've kept you on for over an hour, so I'm going to check we'll in really... with your BMIs like in a month. Like, yeah, how's your right, BMI yeah. doing? Hey, we'll How, back, what are you we'll benching? What are you benching? I want to have like a left Joe Rogan, like weightlifting mm. for left, like heavy lifting for leftists and things like that. So, how are you benching? How much are you benching? That is Kale? a good I, 2022 resolution. I I know a few of the actually you. That has already spawned in, in the Brooklyn left circle, which is progress. So progress has been made. So okay, good, good. Let's so get some tuned, team. Gotta, Let's get some team sports though going. Gotta bring them in. <laughs> gotta gotta okay. recruit to the uh, the sports micro sect. <laughs> Spartak Moscow, big big important leftist football team. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank Catherine. you. Take care, Thanks, Catherine. Thanks so much. Talk Thanks for soon. having me. Bye.
Um, um, yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta hit the bench pretty soon. That's the, that's what I'll be doing over the next. I did not weeks. see the sports recommendation coming, but I am into it. I like. <laughs> no, I think it's right. I think, I think she's right. I mean, I, again, I do too. I, I think uh, Bernie was selling out state when he wasn't selling. He was bringing people into stadiums. He was like selling out. He plays he basketball. Like, yeah, he plays basketball. Bernie, come on. Bernie plays it, basketball. It's, I think we already have the template. Again, I mean, mm-hmm. it just all kind of keeps coming back to if the left looked and acted and had the same career as Bernie Sanders. Uh, <laughs> everybody everybody would be in great shape. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree. It would be, that's, that's the way out. That's really the only way out of neoliberalism is just to like make, you know, many, many Bernie Sanders everywhere. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, it's getting late, but Kale, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about what is in store for the Jacobin channel in 2022? I know Kale's working on some projects and they're like semi-secret, so I don't know how much you can get into it, but give the people a taste of what's coming up. Yeah. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, this show is going to continue. Um, we're still going to have Jacobin show in the future. You will see much more of Jen Pan. Um, so sorry, uh, no, I, <laughs> you're just going to have to deal with a lot more Jim Pan, but, um, obviously weekends is not going to be continuing, but you will still see Anna and Nando. Um, we're going to find, uh, new ways to integrate them into the channel. Um, we have some Perhaps ideas. even as guests on the Jacobin show. We shall see. Um, there's, and there's going to be a lot more stuff. Uh, a lot of like, I think the idea is that, you know, we'll keep doing these shows um, for you guys and hopefully, you know, we're of use and um, please, you know, whenever you can, uh, we always accept uh, recommendations and critiques. And if you have like, if you're like, wow, I wish, I wish someone was talking about this thing, this issue that um, actually is something um, that is affecting, especially like left politics. Uh, we want, if, if it's not, evident um by what we've said so far we want a strong healthy successful left and so mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. i think a lot of what jackman show will be doing um but we're mm-hmm. going to try to do a lot more um other shorter pieces that um hopefully uh you guys will enjoy and hopefully your your parents your fr- your parents friends um you know their divorced relatives their cousins that it's just like go All up of the family the tree yeah everyone you know it's it's more kind of material that hopefully, you know, is, is explaining what we're explaining in the simplest language, um, but is hopefully politically useful. Uh, and so that's- Kale, I just want to say something really quick about a strong, healthy left, because um, we didn't get into this with Catherine, but, you know, there's a kind of like weird subgenre or whatever of like, uh, I don't know, like medium posts or like social media posts that are like, this is why I left the left or like, this right. is why I'm no longer on the left. And a lot of those posts actually talk about a lot of the same pathologies and like bad behavior that we just talked about. Um, but I just want to say like, we're on the left. So like the people doing the bad behavior, you can leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, if you, if you're contributing bad pathologies, like <laughs> you should, you should do a little, you know, uh, self, self-reflection a little, um, maybe you should like pick up your, you know, your red book and actually, you know, spend some time thinking about, uh, do, do a struggle session is what I'm saying. Um, um but, but also like, you know, if you're a person who's watching the show and you feel disillusioned with the state of the left and, you know, again, like some of this bad behavior that's been going on, like, don't, don't give up. You're on the left. 
Yeah. And um, we need to win because yeah. there's too much at stake right now. So, um, you know, pathologies, hopefully we can get rid of some of them, correct others, and maybe some of them will just become irrelevant. Maybe that's, you know, I think there's probably going to be like some, you know, bad social behavior, even when we're winning. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. When the left was winning in the past, I'm sure you can find behavior there. We should be doing our part to like reintegrate left politics with working people. And so, you know, to the, when there's strikes, you should be getting involved. You should go to the picket line and ask what you can do to contribute. That's what, you know, we had a great interview with Jay McElbee last week that she was stressing this point, um, you know, and you should be thinking about like, how, how do I in fact communicate my politics to people who disagree with me? Um, you know, if all you can do is talk to people who agree with you, uh, we're kind of fucked. So that's, I think, um, you know, that's what we should yeah. be focused on. And we're going to try to do our part to help you with that in the new year. So um, a lot more stuff coming out. Uh, and I didn't really disclose any of it, but you will right, see it yeah. very soon. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, some friendly yeah, faces, and- maybe peace, people you saw earlier tonight. Who knows? We'll see. Mm, Anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess on that note, uh, just a reminder Again, like Hale said, we'll be back next year, but we are taking a few weeks off uh, just for the holidays. So, you know, I just want to say now, thank you for watching uh, this year. Um, In case it hasn't been totally apparent, like I have never done a YouTube show before. And um, I, for the obvious reasons of its YouTube comments, I like don't frequently trawl the comments. Uh, But like on occasion, I've seen people like, leaving really thoughtful and like interesting and nice comments. So if, if you have, thank you. Um, you know, I've really like, I don't know, like I've really enjoyed seeing those and like hearing from you guys. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll talk again next year. So I guess happy holidays. Uh, and uh, Kale, unless you have any, any last thoughts. Yeah, I have a lot, but Yo, we're okay. Not well, <laughs> Uh, you'll just have to wait until next year to hear Kale's thoughts. That's right. Uh, thank you so much, Jen, for your year. And, uh, thanks everyone for watching. Um, you, again, you're going to see a lot more. There's going to be a lot, a lot more going on next year. So <laughs> <laughs> happy holidays. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Good night guys. Bye.